Good morning. This is Talking Animals on WMNF. I'm Duncan Strauss, and my guest today is Allison Argo, a writer-director specializing in making films about animals, but not just any animal films. Over the course of a career spanning more than 25 years, Argo has tended to center her movies around storytelling about animals contending with a particular plight or spotlighting specific animals bedeviled by awful conditions in captivity or otherwise. Her first filmmaking foray telegraphed this approach she encountered a gorilla named Ivan who had been living alone in a shopping mall in Tacoma, Washington for the better part of 30 years. Already bothered by the lives of gorillas in captivity, Ivan's situation galvanized her into, with zero movie-making experience, write, produce, and direct her first film, The Urban Gorilla. That film received a raft of accolades, including the DuPont Columbia Award for Journalism, as well as two Emmy nominations. In the ensuing quarter century or so, her films have been accorded every award imaginable, including six Emmys. Her latest movie, The Last Pig, steps into the world of Bob Comas, a pig farmer who initially was drawn to that business by a desire to provide an alternative to the factory farming experience for all parties. But in this beautifully shot, deeply poignant cinematic profile, Comus emerges as a bright, emotionally complex, eloquent man who is increasingly haunted by raising these animals, also bright and emotionally complex and probably eloquent, and then taking them to the slaughterhouse. In The Last Pig, Argo captures someone undergoing a wrenching reckoning. It's hard to imagine anyone watching this film failing to be enormously moved or not undergoing a reckoning of their own. We'll discuss The Last Pig and a career devoted to making films about animals, including her movie and the works that will follow The Last Pig, when I speak with Allison Argo in a few moments here on Talking Animals on WMNF. Later in today's program, I'll talk with Courtney Frank, a fear-free certified dog trainer with more than a decade of experience who will be conducting puppy workshops on the next three Wednesday nights starting tonight. The training session will be held at Edge Animal Hospital in St. Petersburg. More on this a bit later in the show. Right now, though, let's talk animals, films, and animal films with Allison Argo, with a reminder that I invite you to join the conversation by calling 813-239-9663, emailing dj at wmnf.org, or texting 813-433-0885. This is Allison Argo on Talking Animals on WMNF. Good morning, Allison. Hey, Duncan. How are you? Good. Thanks for joining us on Talking Animals. Thank you. So first, a belated con- congratulations on the last pig. I realize it's been out for a while, but it is still your, at the moment at least, your most recently released film. And as the introduction suggested, I love this film. I was deeply moved by it. So I look forward to discussing the last pig and your approach to filmmaking, including the film you're working on uh, presently. But first, I'd really like to go back to the part of your life before the filmmaking. I'm interested in how during your childhood and formative years, the family business was theater. Tell me, tell me about that. Yeah, I grew up in a little what we call summer stock theater, which means it operates only in the summertime mm-hmm. um, on Cape Cod, where I've, I've moved back there now. So I live only a few miles away from my my spawning ground. But um, it was just a, a tiny theater, and every year a bunch of actors would come and live with us, and they'd put on a, a, a different show every every week. And so I grew up being dragged on stage at the age of two and um, just sort of went into the most obvious, I guess, career choice for a young person. Um, it, it was something that I knew so well. I'd, I'd been on stage for most of my life. So I went into acting and I moved to New York City and I 
I ended. I, I moved there with a hundred dollars in my back pocket, basically. And that's. Some, I think that's the required money. amount for that story, right? You can't have any more in your pocket. Yeah. <laughs> yes, uh, but of course, back then it was it was more than what it would amount to today. But, sure, of course. Yeah. Yeah. So I, I walked dogs. I waited tables. I cleaned apartments. You know, I did all that stuff, and um, gradually, I, I sort of found my way into the professional world, and I started. Oh, doing radio commercials and television commercials and Broadway. I did three plays on Broadway and um, episodic and, and a year on Search for Tomorrow, a soap opera. Wow. And uh, yeah. and then I moved to L.A., which seemed to be like, the, you know, the next step in my acting career. And uh, I got lots of really good good roles in movies of the week and television pilots and series. And um, and I realized gradually that I was really not very fulfilled. Um, and I, at the same time, started learning more and more about gorillas, believe it or not. Uh, Diane Fossey was out in the wild doing her work, and we were really unraveling this myth of this ferocious animal you know, that had sort of shadowed this this actually very gentle creature for, you know, for as long as, as we've been writing history. And and she disproved that. And I, I was just really taken by the fact that they were gentle vegetarians, that they lived in family groups. And um, and then um, my then husband, who who was a cinematographer, and I started, we started looking around us and realizing that we were surrounded by gorillas in captivity. That every we traveled a lot, and every place we went, there was a gorilla in a zoo or or a handful of gorillas, and we realized that their lives were not really where they should be. They were not being cared or offered the kind of life that they should have been in captivity. And I guess the most glaring example was Ivan, as you mentioned, this uh, gorilla, silverback, full-grown silverback, gorgeous gorilla, living in basically no more than a concrete box mm. uh, and a and a little um, circus trailer in a, a ratty little shopping mall in Tacoma, Washington. And it was perfectly legal. He hadn't he hadn't seen another gorilla for most of his life. He hadn't seen the sun or or stepped on anything but, you know, concrete mm. for most of his 30 years. And it was just uh, such a wake-up call that I was propelled behind the camera. And honestly, I never looked back. I am so happy to be making film uh, as opposed to acting. It just is, is such a better path for me. I feel like I can make some sort of contribution, maybe open some eyes to the struggles of others and, and maybe instill some compassion in people. Yeah. And then it's just, um, you know, for young, if there are any young people listening, you know, sometimes it takes a while to find your path and you go down another path, but um, just stick to it and listen to what really makes your heart throb and sing and, and usually it, it's there, somewhere there, if you keep sniffing around. And sometimes the path you're on that doesn't turn out to be the path somehow can help and support the path that you later 
discover is the correct path because I'd like to think that uh, a lot of your theater work and uh, playwriting and, and storytelling and all those things are all wrapped up into your world. Uh, yeah. Certainly figured in later to telling all these great stories about these animals that uh, absolutely have, yeah yeah. I mean, I used to sit up in the balcony and watch the plays that I wasn't in Tennessee Williams or you know, and just you know sob. And I think I just I just absorbed storytelling, just the art of storytelling. Yeah, and um, and I've always had. A, a tremendous soft spot for the underdog, you know, and the struggle of the underdog, and and that's really at the base of I think all of my films. And yeah, you're right. You you get to use what you've gleaned on your path, and it's wonderful how how just magical how life can lead you in funny directions. Yeah. Well, I want to delve into that more and, of course, some of the things that you did since uh, that first film. But I'm still really interested to know, uh, even though we're talking just now about uh, storytelling and how that supported your foray into filmmaking. But still, a lot of people might be bothered about gorillas and this, this situation with Ivan just sounds, you know, particularly egregious. But... Uh, how how did you actually go from saying this really bothers me and some of the other cap- gorillas in captivity kind of have been bothering me anyway and now this Ivan thing has particularly um, got my attention and my passion up. But how did you go from there saying, well, I think I can, ma- can and should make a film about this? Uh, well, I, I talked about it for maybe 10 years, okay. maybe eight years, and I got so sick of hearing myself say the same <laughs> thing over and over again. Yeah. And actually, I met somebody who was on, I mean, it's just a chance meeting. I met someone who was on the steering committee at the San Diego Zoo, and I was going to be in San Diego shooting a commercial, and he said, oh, I'll set up a meeting um, uh, with the primatologist there. And I thought, oh, great, I'll get a be- behind-the-scenes tour or something. Mm-hmm. Well, I walked in, and he had assembled the entire, uh, uh, you know, the the management of the San Diego Zoo, the president and the CEO. And wow. they, they were all sitting there at a conference table and said, so tell us about your film. And that was the tipping point. I couldn't turn back after that because I just blurted out what I had in mind and... That's how it started becoming real. I, I, I'm, I will never go back on my word. If I say I'm going to do something, I will, I will see it through. So, three years later, uh, I had, I had shot. I was lucky that my my then husband was a wonderful cinematographer, mm-hmm. and our best friend was a sound recordist. And I just sort of fumbled around and and figured out how to put a story together. I ended up editing it and writing the script, which you know, neither of which I knew anything about. But but again, it was probably in my DNA or, or certainly I osmosed it from the theater. But yeah. after you know, after three years I had something pretty special. And I think it's it's largely because I didn't go to school to learn how to do this. I didn't ab- I didn't adopt somebody else's way of telling a story. Yeah. I just invented my own. And um, I think I just got really lucky. It was at a point where National Geographic was looking for just a new way to tell stories, new talent, 
just they wanted to shake it up, and I came to them, or I'm simplifying the story, but they got to see my rough cut, and they just immediately said, yes, we want this. Oh, wow. And um, so it's really a sort of, I don't know if you'd say rags to riches, but I was able to pay the crew, and that was pretty much it. But, yeah. But after it did so well, and people, you know, the audience was hungry for some a different way of telling a story. And and they were hungry to to sort of get under, you know, into the under the skin of a of another species, which the the film really allowed them to do. And uh, so um, they then Geographic said, "Well, do you have any other projects in mind?" And of course, I had a thousand. So yeah, it went on from there. But one example is. I got Glenn Close to narrate the film, which took me about six months to get through to her, but she was wonderful. And she was only the second female narrator in the history of National Geographic to narrate the film. It had always been the male voice of God. Mm -hmm. So it's fun to get to break some barriers once in a while. Wow, well, that's that's quite a quite a story, especially because if just back up for one sec to make sure I understand this. So, at the time of your meeting with the folks from the San Diego Zoo, you had been talking and thinking about the film or the idea for a film for some time. But at the time that you met with those folks, the film didn't exist or even didn't have even the beginnings of a production. Right? You just sort of you kind I had nothing. Of, so it was the classic bluff when they said, "Tell us about your film," and then you said, "Okay, I guess uh, I'm on," as they say, and then. And you said, "Well, here's here's what my film will be," even though there's no no such thing even remotely existed. Yes, well, that's it just great. out my idea for the film, which was to profile a, a number of gorillas and tell their stories. Yeah, um, and their plights to share their plights. But yeah, it's it's like the fate throwing you into the deep end. Sure, sometimes it's good to be on the spot. Yeah, it is. Yeah, so when you were when you were making uh, Urban Gorilla. Um, did you find, uh, especially again, surrounded by people who were, you know, very accomplished people that you were either married to at the time or friends with or whatever? But did did you find that it came kind of naturally to you overall the process? Well, I do remember dark moments where I we'd spent all our money and and my my marriage dissolved during the post-production process mm. which was um, unfortunate but we were at different we were there was a big age difference he was 18 years older and I just think we we went into different phases of our lives so sure we split up amicably but I would sit there at you know two in the morning trying to figure out how to edit and um, just feel so hopeless and like oh, I spent all our money on this and <laughs> who am I kidding? And then I thought, I would just say to myself, if this, if I can give it to PBS and it and it plays at midnight somewhere and five people happen to see it and it changes their feelings and their perceptions and their actions, then it will be worth it. And my mantra was basically, it's for the gorillas. It's for the gorillas. Mm. Not about me. It's not about, you know, my struggles. It's, about I'm doing this for the gorillas, and so that that passion and commitment, I guess, is what got me through those dark yeah. years. And I remember calling people, you know, friends of friends, saying, 
who had made documentaries before asking, well, do you start editing first or do you write the script? How does this work? Yeah. And again, I'm, I'm glad that nobody really told me because it works differently for different people. It's, it's such a personal thing to, you know, you discover your own way of, of formulating a story. And my, my way of doing it is quite different from many of my close friends. Yeah, and it sounds like for that very reason, kind of devising your own method as you as you went along and kind of traveled the learning curve, uh, created a film that obviously was quite striking and kind of did very well and obviously yeah. impressed the National Geographic folks, which is no small thing. So, um, yeah. So in fact, when when they got when you got that kind of reaction and it won all kinds of awards and accolades, some of which I touched on in the introduction, did you then kind of have a clear vision, especially with the National Geographic people saying, you know, what's what's next or what are some other ideas? Were you just all set in your mind, hey, I'm going to make more movies like this and tell other animal stories? Was that sort of just the conclusion that you drew from how well? Uh, I'd say a little of both because they wanted to see the idea, so mm-hmm. I had to quickly, um, you know, put my ideas on paper, basically. Yeah. And, I mean, at the time, I was just so taken by the dedication of the people who worked in zoos, the, the people on the lowest rung of the ladder, the, the animal keepers, or now we say animal caregivers, mm. or, um, that they would come in on their days off, they'd spend the night in the gorilla house to make sure that a sick gorilla was okay, and I... And and then I sort of took that concept a little bit further and thought about people who work on a rhino sanctuary in Africa. And so that was my next film that I suggest. It was called Keepers of the Wild. And um, that, too, did really well for them. Um, I won an Emmy for directing, which, you know, all of this was like, what is, what's happening here? <laughs> <laughs> make a bit of sense. Yeah. But, you know, it allowed me to make another film um, but I should say that my film that followed that I made about the amphibian crisis that, mm. that um, everybody was so skeptical about at the time that frogs and, and various amphibians were falling prey to something. They were disappearing. Whole species yeah. hadn't been sighted for decades. And um, so I really wanted to tell that story and and bring it to you know bring some public awareness to it. And I worked for something like nine months to convince them to let me make that film to fund it. And um, so I did, and it did. And it, I think it really did well uh, in terms of um, longevity. And I mean, it, it also won an Emmy, but also it played at film festivals. I mean, for ten years. Wow! And it was it was just a half hour film. They were they did not want a one hour film, which killed me. But I made the half hour film, and it turned out to be this just perfect little bite sized story about conservation, a parable basically, mm. um, that was used at film festivals for, as I said, over a decade, especially for children, and. That is so powerful. That opened my eyes to the fact that we have to reach children with these messages. We have to inspire them and try to instill compassion in them 
For uh, sure, especially if we're talking about things like conservation, or more recently, obviously, uh, climate change or other things. If you don't, yeah, if you don't reach them in some some way with your story, or uh, if you're making a film, whatever, you're missing uh, obviously a key uh, contingent. Yeah, it's so true. Yeah. This is Talking Animals on WMNF. I'm Duncan Strauss. If you just tuned in, my guest is Allison Argo, a writer, director, producer, who for more than 25 years has specialized in making films about animals. Her latest film, The Last Pig, profiles pig farmer Bob Comas, a bright and mostly complex man, who having recognized that the pigs are also bright and mostly complex, is increasingly haunted by raising them and then taking them to the slaughterhouse. It's a powerful reckoning amidst an enormously poignant film. If you'd like to ask Allison a question or offer a comment, Please call 813-239-9663, email dj at wmnf.org, or text 813-433-0885. So I want to get into some other films, including obviously probably The Last Pig. But I'm wondering, uh, with the way things went, uh, it just kind of seems like one film begat the next, etc., and you're with support from National Geographic and others. So this may be kind of a rhetorical question, but I'm just wondering, over all the years... Was there a time uh, when you considered making a documentary, just something interested you or that you read about or grabbed your fancy in some other way, strictly about humans, like there was no animal element to speak of, and you thought, well, that's a film that, that needs to be made? Um, oh, man. There, there are films that, uh, you know, human-based films that, that deal with human social issues mm-hmm. that... I, I think of every day. I mean, yeah. they're all around us. It's so easy. I mean, not not easy to make the film, but it's easy to spot see, them. Yeah. yeah, to spot uh, issues that need attention and and need a story to be brought to the public about them. Um, and and yes, uh, there was a a period of time where I thought I just have to. I, I need to kick myself out of this arena and go tell some people's stories. But then I realized that my First of all, my passion is, I mean, I think they're the ultimate underdogs, are, are non-human animals, because they really can't speak for themselves. Yeah. In our world, at least. It's not that they don't have voices, it's that we can't understand. Right. Um, and, uh, and there weren't those, that many people telling these stories. And it's what keeps me up at night. It's what makes that's what makes my heart pound and my palms sweaty. Is is these stories just injustices against non-human beings? Um, again, keep me up at night. And so I thought, well, there are so many fine filmmakers making films that deal with social issues that humans face. That I I think I should just. Just follow my passion again, mm-hmm. my commitment to non-human beings. And um, most of my earlier films were really a lot about the treatment of wild animals in captivity. Yeah, but uh, and also conservation. Uh, you know, will we allow these animals to continue to live in the wild, or we, you know, through habitat loss or or pollution or climate change are we going to destroy their their lives their wild lives but then uh i'd say about 10 years ago i finally i don't my eyes opened to the plight of of farmed animals of mm-hmm. animals that are trapped in the farming industry mm-hmm. very fine very smart as you said so eloquently about the pigs 
intelligent, um, highly social, complex beings that we don't, because of our our societal um, culture and what's what's considered acceptable, we don't think twice about them. We just eat our hot dogs and don't even think about the pigs that uh, that are in those hot dogs. And so I really, really wanted to try to find a story that would help people consider those beans that, that we eat. Yeah. And, and I'm not a person that will go into this slaughter. Well, I can't even watch a film that goes into the slaughterhouse. I've been in a slaughterhouse, and I have witnessed, I know what happens there. And so I can't, I can't relive that. And so I think there need there you know there's a need for those films yeah but there's also a need for films that can find an audience that can't tolerate those films or wouldn't choose to watch those films and so when I heard about Bob Comas and his his struggle when I came upon him he was he was feeling that he was leading um, sort of a duplicitous life. He appreciated these pigs. He understood how intelligent and deserving they are. And yet, once a week, he would put down what he calls his emotional um, blocks and take them to the slaughterhouse. And it it was eating him up. Yeah, no, the, clearly, and and uh, I was going to ask, and this is as good a time as any, like how you actually came across Bob Comas, because without Comas, who's a pretty singular human, even as a pig mm-hmm. farmer, maybe especially as a pig farmer, mm-hmm. I'm not sure the last pig amounts to nearly as much. I mean, a guy conflicted about sending his livestock, slot, uh, livestock to slaughter. I mean, that's a story we know and have probably seen in one form or another, but... He is so unusual in so many respects. Again, incredibly bright and really emotionally um, sophisticated, complex, and just so uh, immensely eloquent in sort of charting his crisis of of, of conscience. Um, mm-hmm. That you know, it seems like the film obviously hinges on that guy being at the center of it. Otherwise, it's it's still a film. It's still probably a good film, but it's probably not the extraordinary film that that we know today. Yeah. I he was doing a little bit of writing and and he would post his his musings basically his essays as he called them on I'm trying to think the dodo and um, one other one other site online mm. and someone drew my attention to one of one of the essays that he had written it was called the title was. Uh, do happy pigs make happy meat? Mm. And I read it, and by the time I got to the end of it, I was actually kind of shaking and teary. And I thought, this is this this story has to be told. This man is so eloquent, and so I finally got up the nerve and contacted him. And he, we had a great conversation. He's he's very deep and very thoughtful. Yeah, and full of thought, I should say. And so uh, he wasn't so sure that he would welcome a documentary, but he finally agreed to let myself and the guy who I thought would would be a really good cinematographer for this project, who had become a friend, 
he was willing to meet with us. And I said, no obligation. You can send us on our way. It's fine. And so we drove the four hours and sat out with him um, outside and talked for hours. And by the end, he said, okay, I'm, I'm willing to do it. And we just jumped right in because he was really about to start his transition. And I wanted to get it from the ground floor, you know, from the very beginning. Um, but he did warn us one thing, and I think this is, this is also a really admirable, important part of his story, is he said, I suffer from mental illness, and it's a constant struggle, and you have to be willing to make the commitment to this and take the responsibility. If you get up here to shoot and I can't get out of bed, that, you know, that's just the way it is. And so Joe and I talked about it, and um, we agreed that we'd be willing to take that risk, which is a huge risk, especially, you know, with an independent film. We weren't getting paid to do this, and we basically went to his farm for nine months, one week every month, to film the transition and the the seasons changing and that sort of thing. Mm -hmm. And there were times that we got up there, and he was in a really dark place. And I could always tell because he was wearing a black T-shirt. It's oh. the weirdest thing. But also his dog, who is so was so sensitive, um, I could just tell. The dog would look at us. Monk was his name. Mm-hmm. Beautiful um, pit bull rescue. Yeah. And he'd look at me like, uh-oh, Bob's not in a good place. Because he was sort of tiptoeing around the dog. Um, but then I think maybe because... He was very isolated, and so with with our companionship there, something would it would melt away, and we'd be able to shoot. Um, but he's he feels very strongly that mental illness should not be closeted, or it should be it should not be a secretive thing. That, yeah. Um, well, that's really interesting be, because uh, one of the things that over the course of the of the, of the last pig that I was really struck by is. Um, he's really, uh, he's obviously, as I already said, a singular person, but he's also comes across, uh, as a very solitary person. Like we never know as we're watching the film, uh, if, if there's a family, what, the, what the family story is, is he just there by himself? Um, but you know, it seems like what, whatever other story there might be there is, is kind of, uh, maybe been removed or de-emphasized because, again, his, his struggle, his reckoning is really the, the core story that's, that's driving this thing. Yes, uh, he, he does have a wife who goes to work every day and wonderful, you know, wonderful partner to him, mm-hmm. very bright person yeah. who said, you have my blessing. She was so excited that... She knew about my work, knew some of my past films, and said, this is fabulous, but I want nothing to do with it. Okay. And, and as, it, as it turned out, I mean, she didn't have anything to do with his farming. His yeah. farming was totally his own deal. And as he told us, he actually developed his technique of farming so that he could do it completely alone. He figured out how to you know, transport the water in these big tanks and fill up those smaller tanks and with the tractor. Everything was was done from his 
his tractor, except, of course, when he'd have to move them from pasture to pasture and that sort of thing. Yeah. But, I mean, he did leave a, lead a really isolated life. And, and after the last pigs left, um, he, he really went into a very deep depression. And I do imagine it was partially the, the isolation became really severe because the pigs, as he says, they were his, his friends, his companions. Yeah. Yeah, it's, uh, I'm sure that was a super tough adjustment to make because part of what strikes people, I think, or struck me at least in watching the film is he is so connected to these pigs, um, which of course makes his his, his struggle and his, his the, the, the thing he's sort of battling with over the course of the film so yeah. profound. But also... You know, uh, remember early in the film, I kind of I saw a parallel to, to what I had kind of known about your work. Is he talks about when he started pig farming, he, he knew nothing about pigs, <laughs> right? And yeah. he just kind of figured it out along the way. And like you just said, now figured out in his case a way to sort of do it as a solitary enterprise. But he just figured things out. He taught himself and uh, and came up with obviously. You know, a way that worked for him, just like yeah. you sort of did when you were first kind of learning uh, how to make films. So I hadn't thought about that, but yeah, that's that's true. It's a great way to learn. Yeah. Although you do make mistakes, but uh, we learn so well through our mistakes. For sure. <laughs> they don't kill us. Yeah. So how 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 would you characterize at this point in? You know, twenty-five plus years in, how would you characterize the ethos of of Argos uh, of Argo films? Hmm, what an interesting. Well, a lot has has changed. I mean, not just you know the aging process and maturing process. Um, you know that I've gone through, which I think overall is a really has been a wonderful. I I think I like myself. Even better today than I liked myself years ago. Wow, nice. <laughs> one, one hope. But, um, but the, the business is just unrecognizable. I've just, I, because I don't want to conform, I am a, a bit of a nonconformist. Yeah. <laughs> I guess I pointed out. Uh, I, I just, um, I've kind of given up on getting funding from any of the programmers. The likes of National Geographic. Oh yeah, you know any of the other ones, because I know that I will have to hit certain marks for them and for for the programming to work for their brand. Ah, and like with the last pig, there was no question. I wanted to make that film purely, and it would I could not have made that film for any entity. Although I haven't I haven't approached the likes of HBO or. You know, I guess if I found a champion at one of the more, uh, I don't know how to put it, but um, not as mainstream or willing yeah. to take risks, creative risks, maybe I could find a, a good, a good, um, you know, person to work with, collaborate. Sure. But for the most part, I, I just, at, at this point in my life, I've just decided I want to make the films that I want to make the way that... Not, I don't mean the technique, but I want them to be the films that I want them to be. And um, I don't want to have to jump through any hoops or make them shorter or make them longer or cut that scene because it doesn't work for their audience. And 
And so that's been a huge learning curve for me. I haven't been, I haven't earned any money in, I, I think, over eight years since I started working on the Oh, my day. goodness. Wow. Zero, zero. Um, but I figure I, you know, I can start collecting Social Security. I mean, I, I figure at this point I'm kind of retired, but I'm not retired. If I was to retire officially, I would go volunteer someplace. Yeah. <laughs> and so that's basically what I'm doing, except I just sort of morphed into this um so without you're, really giving it much thought. So you're 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 volunteering your filmmaking expertise and experience, uh, and that's how you're kind of viewing it because the landscape has changed so much that entities where you would previously been able to, you know, sell your films or have them underwrite your efforts or whatever, that's just not possible the way things exist these days. Yeah, I, I, I think that's correct. And, and I just want to make the films the way I feel they should. I want to tell the stories the way I feel they should be told. Yeah. And I don't, it's been, it was really interesting with The Last Pig because my past films, that I made with National Geographic or with the wonderful folks at the Nature Series at PBS. I've made quite a few films with them, love them to bits. And I may, you know, I may make another film we're talking about something. Um, But they, they kept all the rights. So I couldn't touch the film. I would deliver it done. Um, They kept all the rights, but they also did the promotion or no promotion in some cases, but they would distribute the film. So I didn't have to do any of that. With The Last Pig, I have been distributing it myself, which is, talk about a learning curve. Mm. Oh, God. It's been uh, such an education, and I'm still in the process of trying to understand how it works. I mean, it is getting out there. It's the little film that, that could. But it's, it's hard when you're just one person working because I can't afford to hire a team Sure. And I do occasionally have wonderful volunteers who come out of the woodwork and, and volunteer to help, you know, part-time. And that's really a blessing. But for the most part, and I have to go out and try to find funding to pay the camera people, the crew. Wow. Um, I don't pay myself, but, you know, I, I'm trying not to buy the airline tickets myself, for instance, and pay the crew myself. So yeah. It's, it's, uh, I, I need to clone myself or... What I really need, I need to find somebody who is a mature person like myself or yourself. Duncan, if you're interested, let me know. Okay. Um, who, <laughs> so far, so good. <laughs> who is um, really good at promotion and uh, is passionate about animal um, welfare, animal well-being and getting the message out there. Who would like to work with me and... Together, we could work together to get the films out there more broadly. Because mm. it's really a matter of I don't have enough time to do as much as I would like to because I, I also want to keep making films. Right, you're wearing already several hats as it is, so yeah. there's probably only so much time and energy that, you know... It, can... Yeah, it's so true. And yet, it's it's a fascinating... I don't know if we could call it a profession calling, maybe, because you do wear so many hats. It just never gets dull, I must say. 
Yeah. Uh, well, before we get too much closer to the end of our time, let me take that moment that you just because of what you just mentioned to mm-hmm. tell folks that the website is argo a r g o films dot com, and then you can find out information about all the films that Allison has made, including the one that hopefully we'll touch on at least briefly that that's in the works now. Um, yeah. And there's uh, a lot of films that I, I think people listening to this kind of show would be really struck by. There's a lot of catching up I've got to do. But just more specifically about The Last Pig, uh, you can find uh, by going to to the website, articlefilms.com, like how to watch it. Like uh, you can mm-hmm. basically by Vimeo, and for a very modest uh, sum, you can watch the film and just stream it on Vimeo. And there's probably other methods too. So for people listening and say, hey, I'd really like to see this film, that's that's your... That's your most direct path, as I understand it. And that is, um, there's a more direct path for The Last Pig specifically, which is thelastpig.com. Um, so you can go there. And then for my my film that I'm currently birthing, yeah. <laughs> it's, uh, the, the title is Forever Home. And, and that website is foreverhome.love. <laughs> oh, wow. <laughs> foreverhome.com.org all the dots were were taken and I saw on the list dot love and I was like is this real? And indeed it's used a lot by the wedding industry and um, so I just love it. That's great. It's so adorable. So it's foreverhome.love and um, it's it's going to be a really really lovely film that is about a couple who have a refuge, who've created a refuge for farm, rescued farm animals. And the husband is an incredibly gifted architectural designer. Yeah. And so he's, he's designing these just wonderfully crazy uh, buildings specifically for the species of animal that lives in them. So the goat house is vertical because the goats climb and they feel most comfortable when they're up high. And so he's just throwing tradition out the window and coming up with designs. The duck house is cantilevered over a pond because that's how they they move best in the water and they're most comfortable. So it's really, and I'm hoping that this film is going to be really embraced by, by parents with kids. And I mean, it should be, it should be really accessible and, and, uh, to all ages, because the last pig is is you know on the border for for kids. It's yeah, really for sure. Unfortunate, but this one will be. I'm, I went to a film festival in Rotterdam where the last pig was playing, and there was a film that was good for kids that they had in the running, and there was a, a line around the corner at nine in the morning with parents and grandparents with their kids going to see this film and I thought that is so cool because as we said we have to reach we have to reach the next generation yeah and plant those seeds well that's great that the forever home does so um unfortunately we have just about reached the end of our time but we've been speaking with Allison Argo and um Again, the film we've been talking about primarily was The Last Pig, and that has its own website, thelastpig.com. And then the film that's in the works that she just briefly described that sounds really exciting is foreverhome.love is the website for that. And Argo Films overall has its website, of course, argofilms.com, to find out about all the various films that Allison has made over the years and kind of what's coming next as well. So, Allison, thank you so much for uh, joining us on Talking Animals and all the great films that you've uh, given us. 
Thank you, Duncan. Thanks for being so eloquent. It was just a pleasure. Well, I appreciate that. Thanks. <laughs> Bye-bye. Bye. In a moment, I'll speak with Courtney Frank, a dog trainer who will be conducting puppy workshops over the next three Wednesday nights starting tonight. These training sessions will be held at Edge Animal Hospital in St. Petersburg. We'll hear more about that from Courtney in just a minute. Right now, we're going to step into the comedy corner. This is Eddie Izzard with a piece called Talk to the Animals in today's comedy corner on Talking Animals on WMNF. But, you know, uh, whales, they're intelligent. They do whale song. We don't know what it means, but I think that whales are traveling at 78. <laughs> they're traveling at 78 speed. And if we take them up to 45 speed, we'll find they're actually going, Whoa, I love you, baby. And that's quite all right. I love you, baby. Well, then I love you, baby. Yeah, they're DJs, you see. DJs of the sea. Because sound travels well in water, and they need a big PA to be a DJ, but they've got their whole bodies. Yeah, it works, doesn't it? This next song is going out to all the goldfish down by the Azores. I love you, baby. So they're intelligent, and... Uh, and, uh, well, and, and uh, dolphins, they're intelligent, because we all saw the documentary Flipper. <laughs> well, dolphins came up going, uh, what's that? What's that, Flip? Shanghai Czech is having trouble. <laughs> Mao Zedong is taking over mainland China. Shanghai <laughs> Czech has retired to Taiwan with some of his followers. <laughs> where they will have a complete disregard for international copyright rules. Is that what you're saying, Flip, or do you want fish? <laughs> because every, every, every time, every episode of Flipper, he'd say the same thing. He'd always having a problem. Like, What's that? What? A boy trapped in a well, trapped in the water. Three boys. Three boys fell out of a ship, out of a ship, a small ship, a big ship. Two, two syllables. Big ship, big ship, small ship. Sounds like, sounds like the deep. Bit like the deep, bit the shark. Jaws, da -na -na -na, like that. What? Two, two, gone with the wind, gone with the wind. Okay. And they were all like that. There was Skippy. Yeah. What's that, Skip? A boy trapped, trapped drowning in a, in a desert. Drowning in a desert. In a desert. Ill. He's in a sandy place. He's... What? He's, he's, he's ill. He's got a bad leg. What? Gone with the wind? And Lassie as well. What? 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 what the, you know, all Lassie, Flippy, Skippy, all that E sound. Except for Flipper. That was Eddie Izzard in today's Comedy Corner with a piece called Talk to the Animals, taken from his album Circle. Now it's time to speak with Courtney Frank about the puppy training workshop she's conducting in St. Pete on three consecutive Wednesday nights starting tonight. This is Courtney Frank on Talking Animals on WNF. Good morning, Courtney. Good morning, Duncan. Thanks for having me on today. Oh, thanks for joining us on Talking Animals. So, uh, first, maybe you could just give me a brief overview of your background and experience when it comes to uh, dog training. Sure, absolutely. I have been working with dogs for the past decade or so. I became, I'm originally from uh, Minnesota in the Wisconsin area, and I was certified as a professional dog trader with the Certification Council of Professional Dog Trainers 
about 10 years ago. Mm-hmm. And then in the last couple of years, I've received my certification as a fear-free animal trainer and a fear-free veterinary professional as well. Great. Wow. Okay, so on to uh, puppy training in particular, since that's the focus of today's conversation. What would you say is the optimal age for puppies to start to undergo training? I mean, what's what's too young and, and what's like, hey, we, we might have waited too long in this case? Sure, great question. I definitely think anything to do with expo- positive exposure and socialization experiences can start when they are very young. Um, breeders know that already, that they should be um, exposing puppies in positive, gentle ways to a bunch of different things, so they're used to them as they're getting older. Our workshops that we're holding are tailored to puppies that are 16 weeks and under, um, which that's very important for development during that stage that they're getting a lot of socialization and positive again during that time. But I think that should continue throughout the dog's lifetime as well. And what uh, is very important. Okay. And so it's 16 weeks and under, but what... What age would be like, oh, that, that's a little too young to start in on this? Sure. Um, I would say uh, no younger than eight weeks old. Okay. We do require for our training classes and really any group experiences where they're going to be exposed to other puppies. Most veterinarians would say probably no younger than eight weeks old because we we do want them to have their first vaccines on board. I got you. So what are the key things to emphasize in the kind of earliest stages of puppy training? I mean, I guess we could probably look at the sessions you have planned and just sort of rattle off the topics you have in mind for the next three Wednesdays. Like tonight is body handling and canine body language. Uh, The next week is basic cues and enrichment games, and the the third week is puppy socialization and play manners. So I don't know if you want to say a little bit about one or more of those. Yeah, you got it. So for tonight's workshop, as you said, we're focusing on the body language and body handling for puppies. So that's going to be really important for not only teaching the puppies to be comfortable with having all different areas of their body handled, so say when they go to the veterinarian, they're going to be a lot more comfortable with having those areas handled because they've had practice with having their paws touched, their ears handled, um, all different areas of their body handled in a really fun, positive way for them. We want to get them started off on the right foot with practicing that at the workshop. Mm -hmm. And then also teaching the puppy parents to read their body language As we know, being puppy parents, dogs will make all sorts of very subtle cues with their facial expressions, the way they hold their ears, their tail. And we want to be able to recognize those different um, cues that they're giving us that can let us know if they're feeling uncertain or maybe fearful so we can help modify the situation for them and make it a better outcome for them. That sounds great. And then uh, the following week, it sounds like the cues and enrichment games are... A kind of a core part of that uh, session. Yep, definitely. That's the focus for next week, September 14th. And um, that's going to be a basic intro to household manners, attention skills. So introing things like sit, attention cues, leave it, hand targeting. Um, and then the hope being that that will just set a foundation for the puppies and their owners. 
so they can build on those skills in future training classes because that's definitely a really great, um, almost like a hobby for the do- a lot of dogs is to be out in a group training situation. Yeah. And with the enrich- enrichment games as well, I kind of think of providing enrichment games for your dog, kind of like how people do Sudoku or crossword puzzles. It mm. can really just uh, keep their minds active. So it's things like food puzzles, playing all sorts of games with the kibble that they're, they're getting anyways or Great. whatever diet that they're yeah. getting. You can use it in different creative ways rather than just giving it out of their food bowl. And according to sort of nearing the end of our time, but I was curious, like, how critical is it to attend all three? Like, if, if someone just is hearing about this now and can't, already has plans, let's say, for tonight and can't go to tonight's workshop, could they come to the next two or should they wait uh, till the next three are offered again? No, absolutely. They can go to just one of the workshops, two of the workshops, or all three of the workshops. Okay. Um, Edge Animal Hospital is just open until one today. So if they want to sign up for tonight's, workshop they're gonna have to call right away to sign up okay but um they're they're forty dollars each otherwise a hundred dollars but discounted to do all three gotcha and just do one or two yep and what is the uh, phone number for edge for anybody might be interested in checking this out or signing up sure it is seven two seven four seven zero six nine four nine and we should point out that, uh, again, the, the first one is tonight. It's at Edge Animal Hospital in St. Pete. It's 913 First Avenue North, St. Pete. And uh, it's from 630 to 730, and that's the same set of details for the subsequent two on the 14th and the 21st. Absolutely, yep. Great. All right, Courtney. Well, this has been really helpful, and uh, I'm sure you're going to do a lot of pup- puppies a lot of good. So uh, good luck tonight and the next couple of Wednesdays. Thanks so much for joining us on Talking Animals. Oh, thank you so much, Duncan. Have a great day. You too. Thanks. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. All right, we have just about reached the end of today's edition of Talking Animals. The music kicks back in with Scott Elliott from noon to three, a glorious three hours of music, followed by Robin Hooper with another three hours of music, and we just keep the music coming as we roll into our block of programming, Latin, Latin programming and beyond. Next, uh, Wednesday, I'll return with John Turner, president of Project Pop, a local organization since 1984 has been providing pet visits to nursing homes, rehab centers, assisted living facilities, hospitals, and more to bring comfort and joy to the visits. I hope you'll join me for that. I hope you'll visit TalkingAnimals.net. This is Talking Animals on WMNF Tampa, NPR News Headlines, and then Scott Elliott. Thanks. <laughs>